You've been listening to our podcast, Getting Educated, Regulating Your Emotional Reactions, and it's been really helpful. Yet you know you could do better, be better, and you're wanting and needing more support. That's where our coaching service is a game changer. We're here for you when you need us the most, ensuring you have all the tools and resources at your fingertips, guiding and supporting you to be more effective. Our free rapid relief call helps you gain a broader perspective, commit to your best next steps, and determine what coaching support is right for you. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call today. Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. Because I believe that when you're divorcing, if you want to create a conscious uncoupling, you have to work against the, the kind of tidal wave of the legal system and the tidal wave of your own anger and all the feelings that you're feeling which feel larger than life you have to work against that to assert things like cohesion or assert kindness and cooperation or generosity it's actually a practice that you bring to the relationship Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I have a very special episode for us today. We're discussing unlocking peaceful separation, a conversation with Catherine Woodward Thomas on transforming high conflict divorce through conscious uncoupling. So in a world where divorce often turns into a battlefield, Catherine offers a revolutionary approach to parting ways amicably as best with acceptance and peace. Uh, we're going to delve a little bit into the five transformational steps and core principles that Catherine lays out in her book, uh, Conscious Uncoupling, shedding light on how these can be life-changing tools for anyone navigating a tumultuous uh, high-conflict divorce. So if you're seeking a path that turns antagonism into understanding and resentment into acceptance, you won't want to miss this conversation. Just a little bit about Catherine. I'm really so stoked to have her on the podcast today. Catherine Woodward Thomas is the New York Times bestselling author of Conscious Uncoupling, Five Steps to Living Happily Even After, and her second book, Calling in the One, Seven Weeks to Attract the Love of Your Life, as well as an award-winning licensed marriage and family psychotherapist. And over the last few decades, Catherine has taught hundreds of thousands of people uh, from all corners of the globe to create conscious, loving relationships. And she has a virtual learning community that includes conscious uncoupling and calling in the one quests with Mind Valley. I am so excited to have you with me today. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Karen. I'm excited to be with you. I think the work you're doing is amazing. Thank you so much. And I was sharing offline, I overlooked the conscious uncoupling book. I, as my listeners know, went through a very high conflict, three and a half year divorce and incorrect assumption was conscious uncoupling was for those who navigate divorce amicably. It wasn't for me that didn't have anything in it for me. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And so I just want to start the conversation that way. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I felt very blessed when uh, Gwyneth Paltrow picked up on my work and then popped it into the lexicon because it had such a profound impact 
in opening up the possibility of doing this differently. But the downside is that she also went out making it look very easy. And it became a a, a very common term now for amicable divorce. But the way that conscious uncoupling was initially created and actually works is for people who are just crushed and feel shattered by the experience of having been betrayed or having been wrongly treated, or it's for people who want to do this well, but we all know that just because we want to do this well doesn't mean we're going to be able to do this well. So it's mostly for people who are really suffering and really struggling and frankly, who are people who have a certain kind of moral compass and are good people and want to model good living for their kids and don't want to mess their kids up. So I think it's for people who would aspire to a good breakup. Let's put it that way, but are struggling to really fulfill that. Yeah. And I think so many of the people that I work with, there is that desire to navigate this tumultuous season with grace and dignity and often not a skill set that they ever had developed to go along with that desire. And I think that's one of the places where your book really comes in and spotlights uh, what needs to be, right? What you need to learn and what you need to do to walk that path. Absolutely. And I will tell you a little aside too, is that that there are couples who then end up recoupling because the book teaches you core skills on how to do this well. And had you had those skills when you were in your marriage, things might've gone differently. Yeah. Yeah. So where is a good place to start for our listeners, maybe just in describing the concept or the foundation of conscious uncoupling? And then could we look at some of those five areas? Yeah, absolutely. But I think I always like to just begin with a story because I think we all are interested in each other's stories and where things come from. I came from a home where my parents divorced when I was very young and that divorce defined my childhood because it was so hostile and so angry. And they did so many, you know, really unkind things to each other. And it really impacted my relationships for the first 20 years of my adulthood in a really negative way. And so I had a lot of toxic patterns and I would go after unavailable people and just play out those patterns of woundedness. For example, I had this particular weird thing for married men and I would get involved with men without even knowing they were married. These patterns follow us along outside of our conscious awareness. And of course, if you trace it back to childhood, My father and I lost contact when I was 10 because the relationship between him and my mother was so so hostile that uh, she finally asked him to give up his parental rights. And he was married to a woman who would only marry him on the condition that I never be invited to their home. Oh my goodness. Ended up losing contact with my father. So for my whole like 20s and 30s, I'm looking for this phantom father in all the married men, right? And maybe one of them is going to leave his wife for me and reclaim me as his. Some of the patterns we play out are just so, you know, obvious, really. But it's painful and it's heartbreaking. I'm a psychotherapist. I kind of came at that profession from the inside out because I was just working so hard on myself and trying to figure out all of what happened and where it happened and who it happened with and all that could explain myself to myself. But the patterns for me didn't quite change until I began to learn about some of the research that's done and it's actually quite steeped in the transformational field about standing for a positive possible future. Mm. So instead of being just oriented towards figuring out your past to transform your life, you begin to lean into the future you desire and into this question, who will I need to become in order to both manifest that future and sustain that future? And inside of that, I was able to create a huge miracle for myself 
when finally, after many years of hoping, wishing, praying, trying to find the right person, I ended up really pretty magically manifesting a wonderful relationship with a very worthy, lovely human being and creating a family with him. We had a daughter when I was 43 and and I went off and I wrote this wonderful book about how I created that miracle called Calling in the One. So at that point, I start teaching people how to call in the highest and the best partner, your forever love, the love of your life. And then Karen, I had thousands and thousands of followers. And then 10 years into the marriage, we decided to divorce. Which was a bit of, which I, and now I'm looking back on it, you know, it was a while ago. So now I can say, which was a huge PR problem at the time, because I, but truthfully how it lived for me is I was devastated for my followers because I think we all believe so much in the happily ever aftermath. Yeah. And I think there's a covert standard that we're all holding ourselves and each other accountable to, which is if the marriage ends before one or both people die, then somebody was bad and somebody was wrong yeah. or the marriage was never viable to begin with. Yeah. We really devalue relationships. Yeah. And so when that happened, I first had to reconcile that within myself and my own feelings of disappointment and my own feelings of social embarrassment and shame, which I think so many of us feel at the end of a relationship. And then I had the added complexity of being this known teacher for finding the love of your life. But what I realized is I sometimes like to step back and think to myself, what is thinking me? Like, do I have something to be ashamed of? Is it right to, is this the right course of action for Mark and I? And it was, and are we doing this in a particular way that I feel that I can live with? It's enough in alignment with my ethics. And I did. So what am I so ashamed of? So I realized it was that I hadn't stayed married to him for my entire life. So I started to research the happily ever after myth. And I discovered that it's only about 400 years old, which is really kind of a hiccup on the trajectory of human evolution. And if you really study marriage, there's been all sorts of different arrangements through different cultures, through different eras of time. And that this idea of happily ever after actually was born in Venice, Italy, if you can believe it, because it's still kind of the romance capital of the world. But it was really at a time where people lived in dire poverty and they had no chance of ever escaping it. And in fact, there was a law on the books. It was the 16th century, and there was a law on the book that said if you marry someone, uh, that a noble person could never marry a commoner. And so the commoners were really suffering, suffering which was the majority of people, because the, and the lifespan, by the way, was less than 40 years of age. Wow. When that marital vow till death do us part was created in the middle of the 16th century, the, the lifespan was 35 years of age. No mobility, no chances for ever getting out. And so it you, kind of made sense that you would. Well, it was introduced as escapist fantasy. It was like the Netflix of the day. And everybody loved it because it's post-Renaissance. Everyone reads. So it became like wildfire and then it spread to other countries. And so suddenly when the love match came into vogue a little over 200 years ago, we just kind of took it in like God made the mountains and God made the sun and God made marriages to last till death do us part forever or they are a failure. So I started poking holes in that. And then I got really curious about the tendency that we all have to go to war at the end of a relationship. And where does that come from? Because most of us, I mean, anybody listening to this podcast is a pretty decent person, is a moral person, is a person who's reflective. So where does this soulmate to soul hate come from? So then I started to research that. And I found out that there's all sorts of tricks that nature does in our brains and in our biology to keep us tethered to each other, which if you lived a thousand years ago would really make sense. Because if you wandered away from your tribe, you probably would die. Get eaten by something. 
you get eaten by something or you can't find enough berries to sustain you or something happened or you eat a poisonous mushroom or you get eaten by a bear, right? Yeah. So what I discovered is that we haven't quite caught up with our culture. So we still feel like we're going to die. We go right into primal threat. Yes. You are now a threat to me. You are the enemy. Also, the brain is hardwired to keep us together. And if you think about it, hate is almost just like the shadow side of love because you're thinking about that person a lot. You're very invested. If you're stalking that person, right? All of those things. This is not disengagement. The real opposite of love is disengagement, is not having much energy on it, right? Hate is actually a very strong bond, and many will substitute a, a, a negative bond for a, 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 what once was a positive bond in order to not separate. They bonded. Right? Yeah. And then, of course, our legal system came out of this and went right straight into, you know, capitalizing on the hatred. And a lot of the laws are almost designed to keep us at odds with each other. So we're up against a lot. When you say, I want to do a breakup in alignment with my ethics. I don't want to lose my soul here. I don't want the person who's the nastiest or the one with no conscience to be in charge of how this is going to go. And usually they are. Usually the, the person who has more conscience or more capacity tends to be in reaction how horrible the other person is absolutely and it brings out the worst in who we are yeah so i normalize all these to begin with before we even get to the five steps of conscious yeah. uncoupling no i so appreciate that and it and it's true every step of it I, and when you're in something that's high conflict through years or decades there's that as you said there's that you're broken down you go from like the love fantasy to the ruminating about everything that's wrong or everything that was done. And it's so sticky. And I think that lens of seeing the other person as we see it in society all time these days, it's like they're evil, you know, they're a narcissist and they're evil. And it's like, there's so many more shades and nuance to it, but that's something that people can grab onto. And that's what I hear you saying. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, they're nuanced and these diagnoses that we use to help us understand things more. They're not the totality of who someone is, nor are they the limit of who someone is. And usually what's happening in a breakup is I think we all live on a spectrum of health. So there's things if we have too many stressors where it brings out the worst in us on a normal day, we're pretty in the middle. And then if you're really getting everything you need and you have money in the bank and love in your bed and security and safety, then you start being generous and bringing joy into every room you enter. So we're all on that spectrum. You know, when we say someone is a narcissist, we're really talking about kind of the worst of who they are. And it's probably even more exaggerated now that, that they feel threatened And they're in that place of needing to grab everything they can or to suddenly make you the enemy. I think that when um, we're talking about recovery, you're talking about recovery. And how do we recover from this? Because for some of us, it's obviously the worst thing that we will ever have to go through. I'm happy to say that that was not the case for me because Mark is a very decent person and he was actually on board for doing this in a very conscious, kind way. And as a matter of fact, he was the one who started it. Because I believe that when you're divorcing, if you want to create a conscious uncoupling, you have to work against the the kind of tidal wave of the legal system and the tidal wave of your own anger and all the feelings that you're feeling, which feel larger than life. You have to work against that to assert things like cohesion or assert kindness and cooperation or generosity. It's actually a practice that you bring to the relationship. And he began that when we were in mediation. And I'd written calling in the one when I was in the marriage and when we were going through all of our assets. And by the way, legally, he was entitled to 10% of my royalties for the rest of 
the life of the product. And that is a, a nice amount of money, a nice amount of income that comes in every year because that book is a bestseller. But he just looked at the mediator. He said, I would never take that money from Catherine. She worked so hard to write that book. How lovely is that? And that just was the beginning, I think, of conscious uncoupling. The word conscious. I think that when you're in um, this dynamic of trauma and disorder and dysfunction, you're not terribly conscious. And I love that what I feel like even the title of your book says is you have to levitate up. You have to get really intentional and clear to be conscious so that you can be kind, so that you can find your way to forgiveness and acceptance. And conscious in the sense that you're not going to give the person with the lesser consciousness the power to determine who you are going to be. I raised my children on a saying, don't ever let someone else's bad behavior determine yours. And I feel like that's one of the things that you're saying clearly is you choose. And it's a very empowering thing to choose that I have my integrity and my ethics and nobody's pushing me off that center. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and boy, will they try, right? Yes. Boy, will they try. yes. And I was a very sloppy version of myself going through my divorce, which I always as we all remind, are. remind my listeners. Yeah. As we all are. I always think of conscious uncoupling, not as a straight and narrow path, but as the bumpers at the bowling alley. Ah. When you have this little kids and when you go to the Boliana, they put up those bumpers so it doesn't go in the gutter and become yes. a gutter ball. So conscious uncoupling is that just keeps things from going into the gutter. We just keep redirecting back that, into the I gutter. love that. <laughs> <laughs> love that. Wow. So you really have quite a story from your childhood to where you are today. And you've got these two beautiful books and you're spreading the word and you've got other coaches out there. So the other thing in all of this is uh, taking our challenges and making them our opportunities. Right. And it seems like you did a quite a beautiful job that. Well, there is something to be said for the morning after Gwyneth popped it into the lexicon by announcing on her website her divorce with Chris Martin was a conscious uncoupling. The media obviously picked up on it right away, and it was online in one of the urban dictionaries the next day as redefining divorce in the 21st century. And I have to say, I started weeping when I read that. And there was a part of me that could have just died then and there. Like, okay, I did. I've arrived. I did it. Mission accomplished. That's great. (laughs) Yeah, it was very. And then there has been like a plethora. It did open the floodgates because then there's been a plethora of, of a lot of work that has built on the shoulder. So it was, it's one of those things that was an idea that we were just pregnant with, you know, nine and a half months pregnant with. And it resonates with a lot of us who are also the product of the messy divorce of our own parents, because we're at an age now, divorce kind of in America anyway, I would imagine we have some international uh, folks with us here, but in America, divorce, no fault divorce uh, came into being only in the late sixties. And a lot of us grew up in the seventies when everyone was getting divorced and nobody knew how to do it well. And nobody was hip to all these primitive feelings. And you had, you know, it was kind of a free for all. And a lot of us who went through that lived through tremendous amounts of hostility and divorce that was very poorly handled. And plus we were what's called a latchkey kid. We were home alone because the mom had to now go to work and support the family. And we were still little. So there was nobody helping us to make more empowered meaning of it. So I think a lot of us who are kind of creating this more sophisticated awareness that, oh, by the way, I'm not advocating for serial monogamy, but serial monogamy is actually the, the norm. That's the new norm. Statistically, most of us are slated to have two to three very significant relationships in our lifetime, which means that we're going to have one or two 
breakups along the way from a significant relationship. And we really have to learn how to do this better. So I'm proud of us for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I too am a child of divorce as well. And so I second everything that you say. It's true. I, I went into my marriage, like I am never, ever getting divorced. I am doing this right. And then I too felt like quite a failure and you have those reactions and there's hope because the path that you lay out in the book, uh, just it seems to me that it grows consciousness, it grows resilience, it puts your heart and your integrity front and center. Yeah. Yeah. And it helps you to figure out in these very kind of impossible, backed in the corner, damned if you do, damned if you don't situations, how to actually be the leader of decency. Yeah. Maybe even inspire the person who's at war with you to lay down their sword and, you know, come to the table and break bread together so that there's a bit more, I call it sugar in the field. There's a bit more sweetness in the field. And I think that, um, Catherine, even for those who can't do that, I'm a big fan of being able to break generational chains and do it differently so that you're, teaching your children and paying it forward so that like perhaps the divorce you and I experienced as children, that having it different can begin to make changes in generations to come. Yeah, for sure. Thank yeah. you. So should we go through some of the actual? Yeah. The finding emotional freedom, I think for my audience is, I think that we generally feel like we're locked in a prison and there's no access to the key and there's a bully watching the front door. And so that's all mindset and there's so much twisted in that. And so I would love for you to talk about that finding emotional freedom piece. Are you ready to break free from your mundane midlife? Are you feeling trapped in a vicious cycle of rinse and repeat days? No matter if you're experiencing a divorce hangover, job burnout, or you just have the midlife blues, I got you. Hey, I'm Wendy Valentine, host of the Midlife Makeover Show. Tune into my podcast where we talk about all things midlife. You'll learn how to achieve a vibrant midlife mind and body, how to create solid relationships through love and loss, and how to create an awesome second half of life. Just go to themidlifemakeovershow.com and join the midlife party. Well, so let's just acknowledge the trauma of a breakup. And Ju Judith Herman from Harvard Medical School said that a breakup is one of the worst traumas we'll ever have to go through. And so the fact that we're emotionally all over the map is really understandable. And as even if the relationship was not a good one, there was a container to the relationship that, that served to emotionally regulate us. So we might have been emotionally depressed most of the time or sad or whatever it was, but there was a container to it. And once you take the container out, like it just, you're, you can be all over the map. So how do we work with ourselves so that the choices we're needing to make at this time where we're consumed with rage or despair or a desire for revenge that might be really unfamiliar to us because it's not how we normally are. How do we make good decisions to know what to set up in terms of custody or how to divide assets or all where who's going to live where? Like these are very important decisions and we're going to live with the fruits of these decisions for many years to come. So one of the things I teach people to do in step one, find emotional freedom, is how to begin to create a container for those big emotions. Now, I'm a psychotherapist. That's so kind of a psychotherapeutic way of saying, how do you have your emotions so that they don't have you? Mm. Right. And one of the studies that was done in UCLA was uh, a study that was on how powerful it is to give just a name to what we're feeling. 
without fixing the feeling at all, just giving it a name. So they were studying people who were watching a screen with rapid pictures that were going across the screen. And they were pictures of people in various states of horror and despair or rage. And they're, they've got people who are looking at these pictures all hooked up to things that are monitoring their blood pressure and their heart rate and their body temperature and their brain waves and everything. And as people are watching these pictures, their bodies are going out of control. The next set of people, same pictures, but with the word that describes the emotion that the people are having on the screen. Okay. And the body sensations were at least cut in half. Wow. So what that shows is that when we can just name something, we can hold it more. There's like a, a, a frame around it. It's not so overwhelming. So what I teach people is a very simple thing that comes from something called the self-love power practice that I created for calling in the one in a different context. But it's as simple as the ability to take a deep breath and even close your eyes if you can, although you don't have to because you might be taking a walk or something. When you do it, you, you don't have to just do this. You can do other things. And you say to yourself, sweetheart, what are you feeling? And you just give the feeling a name. I'm feeling terrified. And then you just mirror it back. I can see that you are terrified right now. What else are you feeling? And you just go through that one by one. And as you're doing that, you're going to start to feel more and more cohesive and less and less out of control. And it'll put you back into your more adult center. So the, the question, not how are you feeling? It's what are you feeling? And when you say, how are you feeling? Then I am the feeling again. But if you say, what are you feeling? Sweetheart, there's a difference between my very cognitive, competent adult self and the part of myself in my belly that's freaking out. Right. So then the next step in that is that I'm going to have to go through it quickly. I can't take everyone through the whole thing because I don't know <laughs> exercises that I want to give to people. And by the way, I do have these for free on my all throughout the book. If you want this exercise, download it, download it so that people can listen to my voice taking them through. And I will have all of that in the show notes. Oh, good. Thank listeners. you. Thank you. Yes. So the next part of that is to is to actually then sponsor one of the feelings. So let's say I'm, I'm consumed with rage. Mm -hmm. And I've said, sweetheart, what are you feeling? I'm feeling rage. I can see that you're feeling rage. And then I'm going to say, what's the good part about rage? What's waking up in me? Right? Something is waking up and it's the reclamation of my rights to be treated well. The reclamation of my right to be respected so all of these feelings actually have something positive that's wanting to wake up. And it's being able to name them and sponsor them and then even turn those negative emotions into a resolve that from now on, I will only have relationships with people where I am treated with respect. So you turn that negative energy into the fuel you need for positive change. That's step one. I love that. That's beautiful. Step two just follows really easily because it's the reclamation of your power. It's about reclaiming your power in your life because the first place I'm going to go to when I say, okay, well, I'm going to be, you know, respected from now on is what do I do with all of the anger that I have for how victimized I've been, for how badly I've been treated. And I've got this big grievance story. It's burning a hole in my solar plexus, frankly. And I feel like I'm not even a part of the land of the living because this has just happened to me. That's the trauma part. Trauma is just something bigger has happened than you can successfully integrate. It's overwhelming your system. So the tendency when we have a trauma is to repeat over and over and over in our mind what just happened to try and integrate it. But where we're getting stuck is we're seeing the grievance story only from one perspective. We're not seeing a holistic grievance story that would actually lead to growth. Because if you're seeing it from your victimized perspective, which, oh, by the way, if you are, I'm going to give it to you. It's because you were victimized. 
So I'm not arguing with that. Right, right, right. And how I ask people this is, let's say 97% was the other person's fault. Let's see if we can find your 3%. Because that's where it begins to be more holistic in nature. And that's what's going to be growth oriented. Mm -hmm. Because if you can say, yeah, I was married to a narcissist, that crazy, selfish, you know who, or you know what. Well, I married a person who's like that. So what's my 3%? How is it that that personality type was a match for me? I have to see that clearly. I have to see that I disappear my feelings and needs. I make myself less important than the other person. I assume they don't care about what I would want and desire, so I don't really ever speak up. I have my first attention on them. I'm almost psychic about what they want and need and provide it for them kind of seamlessly. Right. So you have to get that person would never have chosen you unless you were that way. (laughs) Right. It's such an important thing. And it reminds me when I was going through my divorce, we worked with a, a mediator, a court mediator around our custody because my ex was very OCD about down to the minute. And she pulled me outside and she said, your soon-to-be ex is one of the more difficult people I've come in contact with and whatever she had to say to validate like that I was crushed. And then she said, but you married him and you, girlfriend, should go home and figure out what your part, his is obvious, figure out what your part is so that you don't repeat it. And it was like knocking me over the head with a cast iron pan. And it was one of the greatest gifts that I was given because it made me shift and stop looking at him and his faults and go, oh, wait a second. <laughs> Why would well, someone like me? also gave you a chance to say, I'll never do that again. Yeah. I'm never going to do that again. And I think that's where the trauma is not getting reconciled is we don't trust ourselves. And that's where to never do it again. And it's such a devastating experience that many people will go on to live a a much lesser life in the aftermath of divorce because they don't want to take that chance again. So this is the save your life step, because if you can say, I take full responsibility for sourcing my safety by disappearing myself. Yep. I made a bad deal. I take full responsibility for not actually getting to the heart of my own lack of confidence and saw somebody was overly confident and just kind of rode on their coattails. I abdicated responsibility for my life to that person because they knew whatever they wanted and I didn't quite know what I wanted. So I went along for the ride. And so I will never do those three things again. And And that is very empowering, very empowering. And then you have to call your friends and say, I am no longer the same person I've been. And I'm just giving you a heads up that I'm not just going along for the ride. And I'm going to start to have feelings and needs and presence them. And I might not know how to do it very well yet. So I might be kind of awkward. Will you help me? (laughs) Right. So you're building credibility with yourself now. I love how to trust yourself again. Wow. So that's a powerful step too. And where do we go from there? Well, right away, they kind of organically move into each other because then you say, well, what would have had me do that for so long anyway? Why would I disappear myself? What's that about? And that's what I call your source fracture wound, the original break in your heart and the story you created in response to when your dad did X, Y, Z, your older brother, your mom, there was something happening in your childhood and you decided you were invisible, that no one cared about your feelings and needs. And then in order to not be completely existentially alone in the world, you decided to just become an expert at getting into other people's worlds and making them happy. So these are adaptive strategies. So you have to go right down to the core beliefs at the level of who am I? So step three is break the pattern and heal your heart because that identity-based belief is what's feeding the pattern. And in order to disappear it, you have to find that little three-year-old in your body. Say, honey, you're not invisible. I see you. And your feelings and needs matter. Yeah. And it's appropriate for you to 
voice them to other people that in fact that will let you know if someone's well enough to be your partner right if you don't do that you won't know and you will marry somebody who's narcissistic because they won't even notice that you're not talking about yourself a healthy person would notice and say wait a minute we've talked about me for a while tell me about you So, so is it fair to say that as you're breaking these patterns, you're rooting yourself back into like your authentic self? Definitely, definitely. And I think prolonged grief is that we get stuck in a false self. If you're treated like you were abandoned cruelly and you internalize that as an I'm not enough story, and that relationship with that person kind of ends and you don't see them, you can... You're almost like they almost exist as a phantom uh, figure in your world who's always mirroring back to you that see you're not enough. So in step three, not only do I help you wake up out of that story where you can say, hey, deeper truth, I am worthy of love. I am worthy of respect just as I am. I need do nothing to prove my value. I have inherent worth and I own that. And I I do not have to overdo to try and prove my value. So you have to correct that in yourself. And then I do what's called a soul-to-soul meditation at the end, where I say, let's bring the soul of that person back into your field. And if that person is scary to you, make them really little, as though they're like a little two-year-old version of themselves. Not like they're a younger version, but like shrink them down to the size of a two-year-old. So you're, and you're big. So you're safe and you can put a firewall there. If you're, so you're safe, but you can say to them, I apologize for misrepresenting myself. I love that. I apologize for disappearing myself with you and never giving you a chance to become a more mature person by organizing around your pathology. But what you need to know about me now is that I am a person who is worth listening to, who is worthy of respect. And I'm going to ask you to speak well of me and to think well of me now. And I and I will pay this for it. I will never show up with someone as a dimmed down version of myself like I did with you moving forward. That's right. So you just. Wow. I love that. Enjoy, right. So in our imagination. We don't know the difference. Beliefs are relational. They live in the relational field. So we don't know the difference in our mind between having a real conversation and one in our imagination. So it will begin to liberate you. So you're not stuck in that false meaning of somehow I'm not good enough or I'm not wanted or I'll always be alone or whatever the story is that we get stuck in that goes back to that old wounding. Catherine, that's just gorgeous. I just love that description. So, wow, now you're well on the path to healing and there's still two steps left. So you notice that out of the five steps, the first three are all about yourself. You are not doing anything consciously with that person because you're a mess inside. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, you're pretending for the sake of your kids, like many of us do. You're holding it together. You're going to work every day because you need to. Maybe you have an ethic of speaking well of that person, but you're not at all okay inside. Right. Still highly traumatized. So you've got to deal with that first. The fourth and fifth steps are now in dealing with that person. I think there's another misunderstanding of conscious uncoupling that it's advocating friendship with your former partner, but I don't. I advocate peace with that person. And I advocate disengagement when it's appropriate to disengage. But to do it peacefully, where you can actually send out a blessing, live and let live. One of my favorite prayers is let everyone get what they deserve. (laughs) I like that. I'm not saying what you deserve. I'm just saying saying what you deserve. Somebody else can make that decision. Everybody's responsible for their own karma. Wow. Okay. But step four is about creating an intention for the relationship moving forward, which is going to be critical if you have kids. And the one that Mark and I said that really just carried us through is pretty simple. Our intention was our daughter's going to have a happy childhood. And that became our North Star. And every decision we made or however we were going to deal with each other 
However, we were going to navigate all the many decisions we had to make. That was front and center. Is this going to increase her happiness or is it going to diminish her happiness? And we both were mature enough to hold to that. Right. And then there's also an exercise that I called clearing the air because we all know the experience of how much tension can be in your body when you see that person again. Yes. And that there's all sorts of stuff in the field. And particularly if you have kids, they're little energy sponges. So they know they read the body language. So how do you actually get complete with each other? So the way that I distinguish getting complete is different than how most people are trying to get complete. They're trying to be understood. They're trying to explain themselves. They're trying to unpack, well, I only did that because you did that. Yes. (laughs) And round and round we go with no completions anywhere, or they're going to talk about their, I'm only this way because my father did X, Y, Z, almost like this, which doesn't complete anything. So it doesn't actually bring peace to the field. But what does bring peace to the field is if you can manage to be mature enough to listen to each other one person at a time and recognize, as most relationship experts will tell you, there is no subjective, there is no truth in relationship. There is only subjective experience, a subjective interpretation. So the other person has a completely ridiculous story that you think is totally unreasonable uh, and lots of projections and falsehoods. And then they relate to your story that way. So you have to put that aside and care enough just to get into the other person's world that you're just hearing what happened from their perspective, the way you wounded them, the impact on them, the cost to them of the choices you made. And without explaining anything, what you do instead is you mirror them. I can see how hurtful that was to you. I'm really sad to see the impact that that's had on you. And then the amends might be, I will never again withhold truth from you. Or I will never again do that to another human being. Mm. And that begins now the process of repair. So it's acknowledgement of their experience without inserting your own. And then it's making an amends. So it's very mature. These are this is why people then end up recoupling. You can see because if you had the capacity to do this in the marriage, maybe the marriage would have been a lot happier. So then, but then you switch. So both people get to get heard, and usually we have one of the coaches facilitate it because it's a little hard for people to do this on their own. It's a very mature practice, but it really does help to make to forward movement. And then the other practice in step four which is uh, called becoming a love alchemist, is these acts of generosity that started with Mark and his putting kindness into the space. And then a few months later, I had a chance to return the favor. He lost his job and we had just gotten settled in two homes. Of course, you're completely stretched because Incomes that were supporting one home, now we're supporting two homes. Yep. Worst time on the, in the world to lose your job. And when he called to tell me, I managed myself enough to not say anything that was running through my head, which was, well, are you going to pay me child support still? Yeah. <laughs> right. But I managed to not say that. I just got off the phone to and, and then thought about it. But by a few hours later, I'd come to the conclusion that he he's not the, the only source of money. There's money. There's a lot of different ways to make money in the world. I'm going to turn my attention there. And I actually realized that there's a lot of ways to make money, but there's only one father that my daughter will ever have. So I called him and I said, how about you don't pay child support while you're unemployed and I'll figure it out. Wow. Right. So this is how our daughter had a happy childhood. She feels no division between us. We've always operated as cohesive parents. We're very different. Do I have complaints about Mark? Of course I do. Do I wish he was a different kind of father in some respects? Of course I do. But he's a good enough father. He loves his daughter. He makes efforts to stay connected. He just helped me put her through college now. We did it together. We're both going to her graduation. 
We had family meetings when we needed them. If she was getting off track, we always stood as a united front. So that's how we did that. We had to put sugar into the field. You have to rebuild a happy post-divorce family. You know, when your cousin gets a new apartment, you bring a plant over. When your former husband gets a new apartment, maybe you bring a plant to them or a box of cookies that you baked. Like, be kind. It will dismantle. People have a tendency to be mean to, which Mark doesn't, fortunately. But people have a tendency to be, it will dismantle them when you do kind things that are just out of generosity without any kind of, you need to give it back to me now. You know, this is your kid's father. You have to live out the karma of having made children with this person. You know, that's called just being a grown-up. We make choices. We live with them. <laughs> and and then step five is creating your ha- happy even afterlife, which is really about, first of all, making conscious the agreements that you had in the relationship, like all, only my sexual fidelity or you're the great love of my life. You have to write in your notebook, what were all those agreements that you made? What did they make to you? And what are the new agreements that are appropriate now to the future you're now creating? Mm. And just make it conscious because a lot of us who suffer for a long time after because we get upset when they're dating somebody else or sleeping with somebody else, we get upset because it there's a part of us that's still inside the old agreement. We haven't consciously moved that forward in ourselves. So again, we're shepherding movement forward in a healthy way. And then the last piece is, has to do with making good decisions about win-win life situations. So there's usually a period of downward mobility. Statistically, it's three years. It doesn't mean you're going to be desolate forever. It just means there's an adjustment period. Yep. Trance of happily ever after is always upward mobility because if you notice, a commoner always married a wealthy person and everybody rose to upward mobility. So we're not oriented towards downward mobility. We don't like contractions very much, (laughs) but it's the contraction of integrity, truthfully. And when you really take on getting your life in integrity, sometimes it is a contraction. You're letting go of things that are false. You're paring down. You're getting very clear about who you really are and what's really appropriate for you. So there is that period of contraction. And what Mark and I did is we actually moved into an apartment complex that was a bit of downward mobility for each of us, but we moved into the same building so that our daughter could just freely go between our homes. So she lived just in one building. She didn't have a big division between our homes. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was cool. It was very cool. So, and we have a daughter who's a little neurodiverse. So all these things were very important to do well. Yeah. Because there's enough challenges that she was going to face in life. Yeah. And I didn't want our divorce to be one of them. Yeah. I mean, that that's such a beautiful path and with so much hope and light in it. So thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, and then everyone loves a happy ending. So both Mark and I are repartnered now to really wonderful, delightful people. And we're both very happy. So you've had a really beautiful experience of uncoupling, raising your daughter together and doing it consciously, doing it lovingly. I do have a question for you. Can you speak to the people who, and I'm one of them, I did some very kind things for my ex many years after we were divorced. He almost died. He had to go into the hospital. I became his health proxy and everything else, but he's not, he's just not capable. And so what I say to my listeners is even one parent, even one person who goes along a path like you described can make a world of difference, even if it can't be all of those beautiful connections that you described. And I would just love to hear from your words. uh, How would you support and encourage people who just would love that, but their ex is for whatever reason, uh, not able to come alongside in in that entire process? 
probably more common. And I, I, I do have a pretty happy story, but I still feel sometimes uh, sad about it. And Mark and I are not great friends. He doesn't call me when he needs counsel. And I don't call him when I need counsel. We're actually quite formal with each other. And we're formal and friendly is how we are. And where we join is around our daughter. So I think divorce is always going to be difficult. And not always, because some maybe Gwyneth and Chris really don't have a difficult divorce. <laughs> maybe they're actually really the ones who did it to its pinnacle. But I just want to tell you that the reward that you get for what you've done is, is your wonderful life and who you are as a person and your clear conscience and your children's gratitude. And you did your job as a mom and you did your job in terms of breaking apart the lineage and you lived close to your own integrity. And I think integrity is its own reward. Really. There's a lot of integrity in that. And again, you know, conscious uncoupling isn't about resolving all of the unresolvable things. It's about being at peace. And at the end of the day, a clear conscience is what brings us peace, really. Yeah. And after being in a chaotic marriage, uh, I, I would say that peace was my North Star. Yeah, beautiful. That, that was the most important thing was to find my way to peace, create a household that was peaceful for the children whenever they were with me. And I think it's also about finding a way to pay forward the meaning that we gained. Yeah. And that's where life gets really rich. And then, so we have to look at creating our own happy endings out of this too. Like what's going to make the lessons learned worth it? Some of us might want to call in the one, those of us who are over 50, who are, and by the way, gray divorce is a pretty growing population where you have more people now divorced than widowed who are over 50 for the first time in recorded history. So the longing for love never dies. Did you read the New York Times or was it the Washington Post recently had an article of two 96-year-olds got married? Oh, I love that. Right? They, they discovered each other over their love for pool at the home that they were living in. And every day they'd go and play pool together. And then more and more the relationship grew and they finally just got married. That's a riot. That's awesome. Oh. So that's one way to have a happy ending. I think it's just as viable and beautiful just if you choose to stay single, but not because you're afraid of love, but because it's a good choice for you and to get involved in paying forward the wisdom that you've gained and the love that your heart holds and be of service. I'm reading uh, Arthur Brooks' Strength to Strength right now, and he's talking about people in the, the latter part of life. I just started it two days ago. It's quite wonderful, this one here. And uh, he's talking about people in the latter part of life um, being of service to the world and paying our wisdom forward. So we might not have tight thighs anymore, or we might not have as much money in the bank as we'd want, but we have wisdom yeah. and we have depth and we have love to give. So it's important that we give it. I love that. And I think that finding your way to living your passion, your purpose, serving is such a, a greater good. It just levitates you up. Yeah. Well, and it completes the heartache, actually, truthfully. It actually, it brings meaning to the suffering in a way that it doesn't exist as suffering anymore. Beautiful. You are amazing. I have so enjoyed uh, hearing your journey from how this book began and your childhood. T tell our listeners again about the free gift that you have. It's in the show notes so that we'll wrap up that way. Yeah, it's a conscious uncoupling starter kit. We change what the offerings are a few times just to make sure that people are really getting what they need. So we have actually also free videos with all the practices that we would do on the steps of conscious uncoupling. So you can work with those. And if you do get the book, you'll see that the URLs, but we're right in the process of changing that starter kit. So we're going to be adding to it, but you can get on there today and get the conscious uncoupling starter kit. And I think there's a video on there and a portion of the book as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. 
Yeah. So I just really encourage each and every one of you to check out the show notes and get that because it's such a beautiful book and such a valuable journey to take. And it will honor who you are, who you were created to be. And I love the concept of completion and it will take all of the struggle and all of the pain and help you complete that circle. And that is beautiful. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. We'll be back again real soon. So you take care. You've been listening to our podcast, Getting Educated, Regulating Your Emotional Reactions. And it's been really helpful. Yet you know you could do better, be better and you're wanting and needing more support. That's where our coaching service is a game changer. We're here for you when you need us the most, ensuring you have all the tools and resources at your fingertips, guiding and supporting you to be more effective. Our free rapid relief call helps you gain a broader perspective, commit to your best next steps, and determine what coaching support is right for you. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call today. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.